the beginning. Anyone? Ah, close. <laughs> Trick. In the beginning was the Word. Turn to John. John. I'm a booger. I knew you were going to say something like that, Julie. Finished your thought for you. The Gospel of John. Who wrote it? We don't know. <laughs> well, I have a hunch based on historical tradition. All we know for certain is that in John 21... 20 through 24 tells us that the author is the disciple whom Jesus loved. Okay? In actuality, it's debated in the community of scholars, and I struggle whether or not to even bring things up like this because on one hand, I don't want to stir up useless, unnecessary debates and foster an environment of skepticism within the church. On the other hand... It's hard to defend questions from outsiders if we never leave our echo chambers to know what kind of questions they have. So regardless, the truth is, um, we don't really, uh, we're not entirely certain, certain this book itself is not said, I, you know, Paul write this in my own writing. It does not, there's no arguments like that. Most scholars believe that the person who wrote John also wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, we know or believe that John wrote Revelation, but even there's disagreement there. They say, well, the same person who wrote the four Johns probably didn't write Revelation. There's lots of debate about this. Also, so the suggestions are vast. Who wrote this then? Well, some say Lazarus is the disciple Jesus wrote. Some say, would even argue Thomas. Some believe there's a John the Elder that wrote it. We don't know, um, but the best and most likely um, possibility is that John the son of Zebedee, brother of James, the son of thunder, wrote this book as is tradition. It's no secret that the Bible takes criticism from outside the church, but I think it's worthwhile to make mention that while most scholars' intentions are probably good when they vocalize uh, suspicions or speculations which are contrary to the oral traditions of men, we should, not, we should also remember that arguing over these sort of vain things is fruitless. It doesn't produce anything good. And so we see this as inspired text. The author of this book, regardless of who wrote it, it bears no weight at all. This is the Word of God. It doesn't matter who wrote it. Um, again, in conclusion, the best solution is the case of the traditional one that John, one of the twelve disciples, numbered among the three closest, is the author of this text. It's believed that he wrote this between 85 and 90 A.D., being one of the latter books that was written in the New Testament. And it's important that we understand that because John is correcting some bad theology that has snuck into the church, the Gnostics. They are believing a lot of different things, but he is coming to correct some of this teaching that Jesus himself, in flesh, came. This is foundational, and this is what you're going to see a theme throughout the entire book of John. This theme is that believing in Jesus, this long-awaited Messiah, the Son of God, people will have eternal 
life. That's the theme. Turn to chapter 20. If you're in one, you can keep a finger there. We're going to be right back in a minute. Chapter 20. Why was this book written? Well, the author himself tells us. So that's always handy, isn't it? Thomas, after Jesus is raised from the dead, he's refusing to believe the disciples and their account of what happened. There were 10 of them that got to see Judas now dead, Thomas missing, said, I'm not going to believe unless I touch. So Jesus comes back again. Thomas answered and said to him, verse 28, my Lord and my God. Verse 29, Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, I'm just setting up the context, have you believed? Blessed are those who did not see and yet believed. Blessed, in other words, those that, that hear about these things in the future, that cannot physically touch the Christ for themselves, blessed are those that believe by faith alone. Look what the author says in 30, John. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Which book? The Gospel of John, as we call it. But these things, these 21 chapters as they have been assembled in your English Bibles, these things have been written so that you may believe, here's the theme of the book, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's the theme verse, if you will, for the entire gospel. These things are written that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, unlike the three synoptic gospels, who's heard that term before? Synoptic gospel, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the other three. What is a synoptic gospel? You know, the, the term is just referring to the other three gospels because of the sim similarity that they have. John is often seen by scholars, by critics, as kind of a standalone. It covers the life of Jesus in a different way. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are an account of his life here on earth. They have a lot of similarities. Sixty-some percent of John, if you were to count up by, by verses, is completely unique to the gospel of John. There's no overlap in the other three gospels. So they think of it kind of as a standalone. So the, go the Gospel of John is unique from the other three. His purpose is not to present a chronological narrative of the life of Christ, but rather to display his deity. This is Jesus, the Son of God. And John is strengthening, or he's seeking to strengthen, the faith of a second generation believers. Again, I said it was in AD 85 or 90. So these are not, most of these people now are not eyewitnesses of Jesus the Christ. 60 some years has passed, 65 years. John's an elderly man. And he's writing to the children now, or the grandchildren saying, they didn't see these things. You've got to make your own decisions and believe these things. And so he's going to make very spiritual arguments as to why Jesus is the son of God. Not just, here's the account of what I firsthand witnessed. The second thing that he is seeking to do is to correct this false teaching that was spreading in the first century of Gnosticism. And that is the segue that I'd like to take because I have said this several times over the past few months, I believe the Holy Spirit wants me to teach and we're going to focus in on as a body of believers maturity this year, growing in grace, growing up in maturity of, of being a mature man. And our brother elder, when he preaches and teaches, he's been working through that same thoughts. So we're right in, in line with 
the Word of God and with each other and working together and, and getting this picture of us growing up to this mature or perfect man, depending on your translation. And so how do we do that? In the Gospel of John, I have been wanting to pick up another book and work through it verse by verse um, since we have ended in Ephesians um, quite some time ago. Um, but that's kind of the segue. We are going to endeavor, I'm going to do my best, to work through the Gospel of John in the, the way of looking at application of how we as believers, comparing ourselves to the life of Christ, can grow up to a mature man. So that's where we are going to do. We're going to zoom out a bit. I'm going to try not to get so nitty-gritty. That's hard for me with I love to go into the Greek words, um, but try and give you my best application that I can. We're going to strengthen our faith, but also as disciples, mature disciples, we're going to hopefully be able to bring our faith to others. That's what the Gospel of John is. He's saying, you second generation Christians, okay, you can't just get around by the faith of your parents. You're going to have to learn to apply these things to yourself and, and share your faith and, and share this good news of eternal life. Chapter 1 of the Gospel according to John. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. If you were to read down to verse 14, we see very clearly that the word is who? Jesus. The word, it, when in doubt, Jesus is a good answer. That's what our, my kids are learning. I ask them trivia questions when we're doing our Bible devotions. Who is this talking about? Jesus! No, not this time, Josiah, but good guess. John does not start with a genealogy, like Matthew, like Luke. Who is this Jesus? Where did he come from? Oh, well, we can go all the way back to Abraham. We can go all the way back to Adam. And we can see he was son of, son of, son of. This is the account but John has, a, again, this, I want you to see this picture. He has a much more spiritual focus on it. He says, this Jesus, here's his genealogy. Oh, he's the son of God. By the way, he is God. Jesus was always with God. In fact, you might as well know that up front because the rest of my gospel is going to require you to understand that. And this is a foundational to our faith. Jesus always was. We say, some people think, well, Jesus just came. Didn't he just come to earth? He was just born of a virgin, right? That's what some people think. No, Jesus was there. He was there at the beginning. Let us create man in our image. The very beginning of Genesis, God tells us that. He says that the three of them, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God himself was brooding over the surface of the deep. We're taught here by John that he says, by him all things came into being. He was there as a part of creation. He's more than just a man. He's a man, yes, we need to understand, and we know that he's a man. He emptied himself, he humbled himself, he became just like one of us. But he is and was always and fully is God at the same time. This is the duality of Christ Jesus. He created the world. 
with God because he is God. Everything that you see, everything that you feel, everything that you experience, it comes from him. He created it. He created you. He created you with the ability to think and move and live and breathe and have your being. He created you with intelligence. He knew exactly what you were going to think and do before you did it. Jesus, the man that we see in the New Testament, knew you before you were born. And I think it's important for us to consider this from time to time because any faith, any religion, any person who doubts for a second that Jesus is fully God come in flesh has absolutely no standing on their faith. There are a lot of people out there that they, they, they worship Jesus as their Savior, but they don't understand where he came from. We need to understand that Jesus is equal with God. He is God. And this is what John is bringing out in First John chapter 4. He, he develops this thought even further. He says, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And he says this is a way you can discern false spirits from good spirits. He says if they don't confess that Jesus has come in the flesh, then they are of the devil. And see, so this is one of the discerning factors of the, the false spirits, is whether or not someone confesses that Jesus is God come in the flesh. Gnosticism, again, only 60-ish years after Jesus has risen from the dead and ascended to the Father. And people are already allegorizing his death. Oh, this isn't a literal person. Oh, he's, he's just a, you know, it's like a metaphorical, spiritual being. He didn't, he's not actually, God. you don't really believe that that was God's son, right? That's what they were teaching. Oh, this was just a good person. How often do we hear that today? Jesus. Oh, Jesus is a good person. He's a person, he, he probably didn't deserve to die. He set an example for us. That's what a lot of people believe. And this is trickled in the church, but see, only 60 years, one generation after Jesus, this is what they're dealing with in the church. Oh, that Jesus, that wasn't really God. So John is correcting that teaching, or trying to. Jesus, physically, literally on earth, is absolutely foundational to eternal life. If you don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, I say you have been tricked and deceived by the enemy. That's what John teaches. Now, what does it mean that John calls Jesus the Word? In Greek, logos. Logos, logos. Well, John never really tells us exactly what he means by this. He's, he leaves it to us to figure it out. But it's worth knowing that that word logos had significant meaning in both Hebrew and in the Greek communities. In the Greek community, logos was a philosophical thing. The Hellenistic Jews, those were the, the Jews that had taken on the Greek culture, okay? So they had a sprinkling of religion. We believe in God, sort of, but we like to eat bacon. That's sort of what the Hellenistic Jews were, right? So they, they are, they're doing Greek things, Gentile things, with trying to worship Yahweh God, and, and they have adopted this kind of thought, the school of thought, that the Logos is this creative energy, that there's this word that is out there, and it's everything exists in it. That's what the Logos was to them. It's a philosophical term. It describes, quote, the world soul, the soul of the universe. It was a rational principle, creative energy. Everything came from it. In later, in, in later schools of thought, this is fast-forwarding to other Greek 
extra-biblical sources. We're not talking the time of Jesus. Fast forward a few hundred years. Logos was then considered the supreme governing principle of the universe. You say, oh, well, that sounds complicated. The supreme governing principle of the universe. What does that mean? Well, it kind of is complicated, but it's no more than nuclear fission is, right? How many of you understand nuclear fission? But you know what it's talking about and referring about, don't you? So the word on the streets with Logos back in the day is, even though you may not fully understand nuclear fission, we understand, oh, this is the, the mechan- what's happening at a molecular level of, of things between the nucleus of atoms. And so here, here we have this idea of the Logos being this entity that's moving all this energy in the source of life, even though they didn't philosophically understand everything, the commoners would understand this is what the Logos was. So, so that's the Greek side, but there's also the Jewish side. And, and we have scriptures in Deuteronomy, and the, the, those that were really Jewish and following the whole letter of the law, it says, by the word of God, in the Septuagint, that's the Greek Old Testament, it says, the heavens were made. By the word of God. By the spoken word of God. And that's how we often talk about that, don't we? The Logos is the written word. And we have the written word of God, the spoken word of God. And so we are witnessing these two cultures perfectly being melded together by John when he writes that in the beginning was the Logos. He's calling Jesus the creative entity, the thing that's holding the whole universe together. But he's also speaking to his Jewish audience. He's saying, this, this is the same word by, by which God has spoken out from the beginning of time that the Messiah, the one who is to come. He was with God and he was God. In English, we typically understand the preposition with to mean near. Julie, do you want to go with me somewhere? Do you want to be beside me or come with me or be near to me? But in the original Greek, it's expressing a living, active union in a much closer sense than that. It's, it's a most intimate sense. When John said the word was with God, it's not just saying that Jesus was sitting beside God. Maybe you have that idea, that thought, but he meant that the divine word, Jesus Christ, was not only present alongside God for all of eternity, but he was a living, dynamic, co-equal relationship of close community. The, the Holman New Testament commentary writes, the Greek word pros, which literally means toward, it implies a face-to-face relationship. So imagine Jesus looking at the, the eyes of the Father. That's what it means to be with God face to face. And, and side note, we're going to get to this in, you know, I don't know, a year and a half or two. John chapter 17, do you remember? This is what Jesus prays for his disciples, right? He's praying for Jesus. He says that they may be one even as we are one. He wants us to be face to face with him, face to face with God in the way that he has that close unity. That's really powerful. Wow. Verses 4 and 5. In him was life. That's in the word in Logos. In Jesus Christ was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now two themes are introduced here. What are they? Light and life. 
John's going to expound upon these throughout the rest of his written works, but for now, perhaps you maybe just want to underline those. They're going to be important. Put them into your mental faculties. Life and light. You're going to see a lot of life and light throughout John's writings. Do you remember when God created? I tricked you earlier. In the beginning, God. He created in, in the account in Genesis. How did he do it? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was void and formless, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. The Spirit of God was moving or brooding over the surface of the waters, and then God said what? Let there be... Huh. Interesting. This process of generating life begins with light. Now, in... In the Hebrew world and understanding, we talked about creation, I don't know, a few months ago, maybe it was in the fall. There's this sort of description of, of how things came out of nothing, and I, and I believe that's what's the, the description of what's happening in the book of Genesis, is that God's creating matter out of nothing. What light is, is existence, and what nothing is, was darkness. But John is tapping into this idea. He's saying both, both physically and spiritually, what you need to understand is that Jesus is creating life out of light. In the same way that the Father spoke the world into existence, out of the darkness he shone light and, it, and he just brought light, John is taking that and he's paralleling it and he's saying Jesus comes to earth and he's creating the same way that he did in the beginning of time. Except for this time we're talking spiritually. He's speaking light into existence because he is the light, and that life being life. Now, we meet somebody else in verse 4, verse 6. This is actually the first person we come to. John, we know he's introduced Jesus, but he's using it in a uh, cryptic way, talking about the word. The first person we come to, now there came a man from God. This is verse 6, whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about that light we're talking about, that light, that life, which is Jesus, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light. That's talking about John. John was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John, this is John, this person we meet here, is not the writer John, the apostle John. This is John the Baptist. All of this is, a, remember, this is an introduction to the Messiah. We haven't even gotten to Jesus yet, really. He's just alluding to it by the word, this logos. He's saying, before we even get to Jesus... I need you to know about someone important. There's this man, John, that God sent. Remember why John, the apostle, we said, and I, ha I started you there in John chapter 20. Remember why he wrote this book. So that you may believe in the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing in him, you may have life. And so there's this man sent by God to prepare the people for the life, that light. Well, it turns out that there are several passages in the New Testament which specifically attach John the Baptist to some Old Testament prophecies, and for time's sake, I'm just going to give you some New Testament verses. You can follow the margin on your 
your Bibles, your own personal time if you'd like to connect the dots. But how do we know this is someone that's been prophesied of old? Well, very clearly, we're told two different places. Matthew 3, 1 through 3 says, Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, and he quotes this verse from Isaiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, prepare his path straight. So John the Baptist is the one who God sent to prepare the way for Jesus Christ. Matthew 11, 7 through 10. Again, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. That's John the Baptist. He says, this is the one about whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. These are Old Testament quotes. Now, clearly, Matthew and John are bringing this point out that John the Baptist was sent to prepare the people for the coming of Christ. That was his job, his duty. In fact, that's why he was created and eventually why he ended up dying. They didn't like the message that he was bringing. John was not the light, but he came to testify or give testimony about the light, to to point to the light and say, here it is. And that would, sure enough, happen before his death. Now, have you ever thought about and considered why John the Baptist was even needed? I mean, like he preached a little bit, but then he got beheaded. It's not like he really helped convince the religious leaders that the Messiah was there. Oh, they all repented, right? And there was great revival in Israel. Well, most obviously, I would say there are three things here, but first and foremost, to fulfill Scripture. He was prophesied of, and this is a sign and an indication that God is fulfilling His Word. This is to point to Jesus ultimately and say, this is the one who was spoken of. But secondly, God used John the Baptist, let's not forget, to baptize Jesus in the water. John says, don't, I can't do this to you. Permit, and Jesus says, permit me at this time. So Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. A dove, the Holy Spirit, descends on him, fills him again. But thirdly, there's this other thing, and I get this from pondering it. John the Baptist was, I believe, an example to us. Was he not? Behold, I am sending my messenger, and he will clear a way before me. We're talking about the gospel of John, so that others may believe in the light, the life, Christ Jesus. How we can apply this to our lives as disciples and followers of Christ, what can we glean and learn from this? Let me ask you a question. We have, I'll make a statement first, we have an opportunity to prepare hearts for the coming of Jesus, the return of Jesus, for the gospel whether it's our friends or our strangers or people in our own home. What have you been doing to prepare those around you for the reception of Christ's return? John the Baptist was sent as the forerunner to prepare the hearts of the people. And I just wonder if we are actually taking evangelism seriously. See, John had this opportunity. He went out into the wilderness. Everyone thought he was a little bit weird. He was hairy. You know, he ate the bees and the locusts, and he was a wilderness man. He probably stunk, didn't he? In other words, he wasn't, there wasn't anything innately attractive about him, and that's 
what we face today, is it not? Our gospel is not attractive to most people. They don't want to hear what we have to say. Repent, you sinner. Oh, that, that's like sandpaper, isn't it? Don't tell me how to live my life. But God wants us to glean, if we're going to glean something from this, God wants us to be like John the Baptist. Prepare the people around you for his return. I'll leave that there. Now, verse 9. We already read 9 through 13. There's this true light. It comes into the world. It enlightens every man. So there's, there's something worth, worth pointing out here in that passage of verses. And I'm honing in on this word true. How many people think that they are doing right? that they are right, that they are enlightened, and yet they're far from truth. You ever met someone like that? They're too smart for their own good. They're enlightened in some philosophical or spiritual truth, yet in actuality, as Mady says, they're lost as a ball in high grass. Listen, there's a false light. Jesus is the true light. But there's a false light. So not, not only are we contending and pushing back the darkness, that's what the light is coming out of. It's, it's to, to, to enlighten the man so they would be out of darkness. But we have to understand that there's this false light that many are drawn to. Don't lose this. There's, there's much of the world that is drawn to a light. But that's the light of religion or of works or of government. Those things may not be bad in and of themselves, but they're not the answer, are they? You can be religious your whole life and not be saved. Jesus is a true light. He says the only way you're going to be saved is if you believe on me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Verse 10 teaches us that the creator of the world walked with us, and yet we didn't even perceive him as the creator. Think about that. Jesus emptied himself, and he came to earth. You ever think about what he emptied himself of? His glory, his fame, all his titles, his honor. He subjected himself to live on the earth as a human. And so we have this ridiculous statement that creator God was ignored by his creation. How heartbreaking, devastating. And yet this is the setup. I want you just to, to imagine and picture for a moment. We're fast forwarding a bit. This is the setup. God's creation ignoring him for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Just relish it. Rejected by his own creation, and yet he died for us anyway. Now there's some good news though. Not everyone did reject him. In fact, right up front in the first few verses of this prologue of John, John jumps into this teaching about eternal life, and he says that if everyone had received the light as God would be born of God. If we would just receive that light, we'd be born of God. Now, I don't know about you, but this really just seems unfair, doesn't it? All we have to do is believe. 
say, well, God isn't fair. No, he's not. That's the beauty of his grace and his mercy. If God was being fair in our world, we'd be all cast to hell for eternal damnation forever. That's what his law requires. His perfection is so perfect that we don't deserve eternal life. Nobody's good enough. So don't talk to me about being fair. What is unfair is that God, even though we were yet sinners, gave us a way of escape that if we would simply, all we have to do, we don't have to earn it, we don't have to, you don't even have to, you know, do these great feats for him. He says, just believe. Believe in me and you shall be saved. We get to be a child of God. Not just saved, saved's good, saved's great actually. child of God, adopted into the family as one of his own. Like, what? God is so good. One more section, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of the fullness we have all received in grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. What are we describing here? Well, this is John's description of the birth of Christ. You remember how I said the synoptic gospels, they're giving an account, of, an eyewitness account of what Jesus did? Well, this is John's version. It's a little bit unique, isn't it? A spiritual reality. Jesus, the Word, came and dwelt among us. In other words, he was born. That's what he's saying. The Word became flesh. Remember, the Word has always existed. He was with God in the beginning, and he's flesh now. It's a little bit bizarre and peculiar, peculiar, isn't it? But yet, we're told that he comes to dwell, or literally tabernacle among us. Which means, God pitched a tent among us. I want to dwell and live with them. I want to make my habitation with them. Think of this, this picture, if you go back and you just think about the garden and how man was taken out of the presence of God. We can't look at God or we'll die. That's what it was. Adam used to walk in the garden in the cool of the day with God himself. And then because he ate of the forbidden fruit and he knew good and evil, he says, now you know sin, you're too sinful to be in my presence. God kicked him out of the garden. Let me make sure he doesn't eat of that tree of life. Because that'd be a terrible punishment to be sinful and have to live forever. By the grace of God, he was kicked out of the garden. Now we only have to live for a few thousand years in the first few generations. The flood comes, and now, you know, our years might be 120 at best. And God says, you know what? I'm going to give them a second chance. And it's through the sacrifice of my own son. And, and Jesus comes and lives his life on earth, and people reject him, and they want to crucify him and kill him, but it's by that same way that we get actually have life with him. We're adopted into the family. And, and, and God says, this is what I'm wanting to reestablish. What was lost in that garden, 
I want to establish that community again. I want to pitch a tent and dwell with them. I, want to, I long for those days that I get to walk in the garden again with them. The Old Testament tabernacle is where God had moved and he lived with the people. Do you remember? The tabernacle was set up in the middle of the camp. They had certain tribes had to be on certain sides of it, to the north, the south, the east, and the west. There was divine order. We talked about that recently, didn't we? God's divine order. Everything was established in a certain way. He was in the middle. His presence, the Ark of the Covenant, was to be set up in the very middle of the camp. You know, that tabernacle was only meant to point people to Christ. I don't know if you've realized that, if you've connected the dots. Do you remember we talked briefly about the Temple of Solomon last week, for those that were here? The temple of, that David wanted to build. God said, I don't need a new house. I've always lived in a tent. The tent's just fine. And David's like, but God, don't you deserve something prettier? I've got this great house of cedar, right? Can I build you something nice looking? Isaiah 53, 2. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. God, God was never interested in looking good. You getting it? Jesus... He didn't descend all flashy, did he? On the white horse. He's coming the second time he's coming that way. He didn't come down. Man, if I was the son of God, everyone on earth is going to know it. Trumpet blast, earthquakes, you know, big caravan of people and armed guards and whoop da doo da doo That time's a coming. But just like the tabernacle was the host for the presence and habitation of God, it wasn't anything special. God wasn't interested in it. We're told that Jesus, that there was, there was no stately form or majesty. He wanted a tabernacle among us. That tabernacle of the Old Testament was to point us to Christ. So God told David that he was fine living in a tent. He said it's the the beginning or the middle of the camp where he was. And Jesus said, John 12, 32, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. There's this focal point, this picture of Jesus. And not only that, there's this tabernacle of the Old Testament was where the sacrifices for the sins were offered, right? Well, Hebrews 10, 12 says, he having once for all, having made that sacrifice once for all time, sat down at the right hand of the Father. So we have these pictures, these parallels between the tabernacle and what Jesus came to do and tabernacle and dwell among us. He came to dwell, to, to tabernacle with us in a way to reveal the glory of God to us. Verse 14, his glory. The glory of the only begotten of the Father. You may think back to the Shekinah glory of God. Moses asked to see God's glory. God, let me see it. The priest couldn't stand to minister because of it. Yet that was the very glory that the virgin got to carry before everyone else. She got to experience it. You remember Jesus being born in a barn, walking on this earth, rejected by men? We beheld his glory. That's what John's describing. His glory descended back to earth 
in the form of this human God-man. Now, verse 16 is important. He says, of his fullness we have all received. That's a heavy verse. I encourage you to study it, underline it, do something with it. Of his fullness we have all received. We talk about the fullness of God, the fullness of joy, the abundance of this, the abundance of that. Listen, what you have and what you've experienced as a child of God comes from the fact that he has filled the overflowing and some of it spilled out onto you. You feel in favor, you feel in blessed. Well, that's because he's maxed out a little bit and he must have dropped a sprinkle on you. God is, of, it's of his fullness that we experience life. He is life. And, and any life that we inherit and taste of, it's because of he's already filled up to the brim. He's the origin of it. He's decided to extend it to you. Everything that we have on this earth comes from his fullness. Grace upon grace. I encourage you to enlarge your view of the Father because I promise you however big you view God, it's not big enough. He's so full of love and of joy, and of peace, and of blessing, and listen, of, of mercy, and of grace, of glory. Whatever we taste is of him, because it's of his fullness. Now, we don't want to cheapen grace. That's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, The Cost of Discipleship, was about. Yet our Bibles teach us about the abundance of his grace, the fullness of his grace. Ephesians 4, 7 says, to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. What was the measure of Christ's gift? Well, his very life. It was the greatest gift that he could give. Grace was given to us to the max. Listen, you're detracting from the work of Christ Jesus if you don't fully embrace his gift. I've said that before. If you don't embrace the blessing of salvation and eternal life, if you don't receive it fully on the finished work of Christ, if you say, oh, well, I can try and earn it by doing a few things. Jesus, let me help out my salvation a little bit by works. If I just pray enough and read enough and serve enough. You're detracting from the fullness of his grace. All you have to do is receive it. It's there. Don't take away from his finished work. See, Jesus is the beginning point of his grace, but he's also the ending point. He doesn't need your help. He doesn't need you to help save yourself. And this is what it means to be under the new covenant. It's his blessing and his gift for you. See, under the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, they had all these laws. You've got to do this, you've got to do this, and maybe if you do the right things, you know, one day God might receive me into his kingdom. That's what they believe. That's what they thought. But Jesus comes and he establishes something new. He says, you guys can't even fulfill that. What have you been doing? Do you know how, false, how short you're falling from my standard? He says, I'm going to give you another way. This is what I wanted you to understand. The laws were to point you to the fact that salvation can only come from me. And Jesus comes and he fulfills the laws perfectly because only a perfect sacrifice on the cross would actually do anything as far as for forgiveness, as far as God is concerned. And he says, I, all I want you to do now is just believe that this is the way you're forgiven. Believe in that sheep. Remember those sheep that were sacrificed? You don't even have to do anything to that sheep. You don't have to shear the sheep. You don't have to take care of the sheep. You don't have to even bring the sheep to me. You don't have to sacrifice the sheep. 
All you have to do is believe that there's a sheep out there, and you'll have eternal life. Now, under Moses, the law was established, and nothing was wrong with that law. It does point us to Christ. Jesus comes, and he sets us free from that. The old covenant was works, works, works. But you contrast that with grace, grace, grace. Your part in the new covenant of God's unmerited favor is simply to believe, and you're forgiven of all your sins. That Jesus' blood will cleanse you from all your unrighteousness and losses. That's the gospel. That's the good news. If you don't know Christ Jesus, say, Pastor, I don't know Christ Jesus. I want to accept Jesus. You know, we say all these phrases, Jesus is Lord of my, my Savior. I want to accept him in my heart. Well, here's the gospel. You want to know the gospel? Believe that God sent his son to die for you. Confess your sins before him and you'll be saved. You don't have to come up front and pray some prayer. You want to do that? Great. You want to talk to me? Great. But that's all the word tells us. Confess your sins, believe in him. You'll have everlasting life. That's the gospel. I want to close out this introduction, this prologue of John with a phrase. The end of verse 18 says, Christ, for he has explained him. Colossians 2.9 says, that in Christ, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Hebrews 1.33 says that Jesus is the exact representation of God's nature. The word explained has a, has a deeper meaning. In, in Greek, it's, it's more, in a metaphorical sense, it means to unfold a teaching. Jesus is unfolding a teaching about God. You getting that? In other words, if you want to be taught how to be more like God, get to know Jesus. And that, beloved, is what the Gospel of John is about. We, as disciples that are hopefully maturing and growing over the next, I don't know, 105 weeks, are going to get to be more like God by getting to know Jesus in the Gospel of John. Amen? God is the always, if the worship team wants to come up, I'm going to wrap up with this and we'll sing a song as we close out. God is the always existing one. Know that Jesus is God. The works of Jesus, therefore, are the works of God because they are equal. Jesus created everything because God created everything. He alone can give you eternal life. Jesus became like one of us in order that we might be brought light. And that light reveals to us his eternal life. I wonder how that will affect your view of God. To know that it's a personal thing that he's done for us. Get to know God through his son, Jesus. I wonder how you can appreciate the obstacles that you face this week or in your life, knowing that Jesus gave up everything so that we might have life in him. It pales. Everything that we're experiencing and facing this week should pale in comparison thinking about the future glory we get to receive and inherit in heaven. He did it for you. Everything Jesus went through, he did because simply he loved you. I want to know, how are we going to spend our time here on this earth? Are we going to do it for ourselves? Are we going to do it like a forerunner, perhaps like John the Baptist? God, how can I this week prepare those around me for your return?